Brynmar Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. I'm Jordi Moniz, I'm a retina specialist from Barcelona. And we have the privilege of having David Steele from UK, honorary professor of retinal surgery at Newcastle University. Murat Onsel from Turkey, professor of ophthalmology at Istanbul Billing University. And Armin Wall from Germany, consultant surgeon at Ludwig and Maximilian University, the Department of Ophthalmology in Munich. Um, so um, welcome everyone. Thank you very much for uh, spending this time with us and sharing our current situation and especially we'll be trying to cover how we're going to face the next step, the next phase, which probably is going to be worse than the current one, which is going to be the lockdown and returning to normality. So, um, so first I'd like to do a first uh, round of uh, 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 quick questions. Um, uh, just to introduce uh, and if you each of three can spend one minute in what is the current situation uh, in your country, a very brief, uh, just an update of your uh, uh, country situations. Uh, you wanna start, uh, please, David? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks very much, Jordi. So, um, yeah, I mean, the UK has been very badly hit by um, COVID-19, as everybody knows. I think we're up to almost up to 20,000 deaths, which is uh, very alarming. But the new cases seem to be plateauing. Um, at, 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 it seems to be about 5,000 new cases per day, although the number of tests that are being done is rapidly increasing. So how much that is just because we're, it may be actually plateauing more than we think. We're just doing more tests. We know that um, by word of mouth is that the ITU bed usage is massively reducing, um, certainly less than it was a few weeks ago. Deaths are still stable at, an, at awful figures of five to 800 a day, but uh, they're expected to reduce in the next few weeks. Um, so we've had seven large Nightingale hospitals made in the UK and they haven't had to be used, which is excellent news. Um, we've just been announced lockdown is going to continue till May the 8th, however, and it's expected that we'll have some degree of social isolating for like more than a year or so. So not much to look forward to, but um, that's what we're talking about. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, Murad, what's in Turkey? The 2019-20 coronavirus pandemic was confirmed to have reached Turkey in March 2020, and the first case being officially confirmed on March 11. The first death was occurred in March 15. In the first of April, it was confirmed that COVID-19 has spread all over Turkey. On April 19, the number of confirmed cases in Turkey surpassed those of Iran, making it the most affected country in terms of case in the Middle East. When we look at the numbers, case fatality rate is one of the lowest in, in the world. It's 2.4%. In Germany, it's 3.6%. So in Turkey, they have a very few case fatality rate, which is, I think, is very important. Maybe this is because of the demographic. They have a population, a relatively younger population, which is 23%. Also, I would like to share that the intensive care units are only at 60% of their capacity right now. There is no shortage of PPE in Turkey. And Turkey so far has sent medical equipment to nearly 40 countries, including UK, Spain, and Italy. The Ministry of Health said that 5,000 ventilators would be produced until the end of May. Right now, uh, the first uh, advisory, scientific advisory board in Turkey was began in January 10. And all the hospitals in Turkey, private and foundation hospitals are turned to coronavirus pandemic hospitals. About three or four weeks ago, the Ministry of Health collected all the hydroxychloroquine drugs, collected them, and they are using it in the Ministry of Health. All 
The masks are free for, free for persons in Turkey. They do not have to pay, and it's forbidden to buy a mask. All the masks are free in Turkey. And some other, and let me tell that all steps are taken currently in place, stopping international flights, suspending education, canceling events, restricting travel, travel, and also, which is very interesting, there is a ban for people over 65 years old and below 20, 20 years old, significant measures to prevent the spread of the infection. And the testing, everything is free in Turkey. And according to one of the infection specialists in Turkey said that was not caught, caught, Turkey was not caught unprepared to the outbreak when compared with Italy, Spain, and France. Noting Dr. Yilmaz, which is an infection specialist in Turkey said that the country was able to plan the hospital and infrastructure preparation in advance. And also medic many medical centers in the country now work for plasma treatment, he added. The necessary infrastructure for this type of treatment is available in many centers. Well, this is a short brief of what's going on in Turkey. Maybe we should be in Turkey. That's great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's, you're really preparing advance, not as, as in Spain and Italy that we were uh, the first and we, we have suffered so much. Uh, Armin, uh, what's your situation in, in your country, in Germany? Well, the current situation is that we are um, considering a lot, uh, given a lot of thoughts on how we're going to get out from the lockdown. There was a intense lockdown um, driven by the development in, in our neighboring states in Austria and Italy and other European states. Um, at the same time that there was a lockdown, um, a, a huge number of inten intensive care beds were prepared and were um, collected. Um, to, to be prepared for a, a COVID situation similar to that in, in Italy. Um, as it turned out, the, the, the numbers of infections um, are increasing and we reached a plateau um, by the, the, by the um, tests uh, that you can see it, tell by the tests. But on the other hand, the number of uh, fatal cases were um, comparably low. So this led to, to a lot of discussion on the focus on uh, how are we going to get out of the lockdown again, including um, the medical care uh, with a lot of patients being referred to later, um, um, later periods for, for surgery or for treatments. So um, I think in Germany, the current time, uh, that the current time is more the, the focus on how are we getting out of the lockdown? And there's a lot of discussion also, um, if this is a discussion which is uh, led too early or um, if Germany, there's uh, in signs that there might be a second peak in Germany with the R factor going up again. So currently we, we are, we're hanging in between thinking of how to get out from the lockdown and thinking, what are we going to do if there's going to be a second wave of uh, uh, corona infections? Wow. So now we do a, another round, uh, a, a fast uh, round uh, with the, uh, the current situation of ophthalmology practice, retina practices per country. And, and in the second question, we'll do it in your, in your particular case. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, our lockdown started on March the 23rd, and, but two weeks before that, we were stopped from doing um, all elective cases uh, stopped. Um, and um, so we only, are, we only do acute cases, which are time sensitive. So um, we can talk about the specific ones, but obviously things like retinal detachment, trauma, acute submacular hemorrhages and so on. Um, but um, all other elective and non-time non critical surgery has been deferred. So we do telephone consultations on all our uh, clinic patients. And uh, if we can, if the patient's stable and they've got a condition that's stable, we defer their appointments, face-to-face -face appointments for three months. Um, anybody we have to see, obviously we see. Uh, depend, and it depends on the case mix of individual persons. So a lot of my work is 
is acute VR. So my work has been less affected. Um, although interestingly, and it'd be interesting to see what everybody else is finding, but we're finding that about 50% of our acute cases aren't presenting to hospitals, they're staying at home. So we, we're expecting, to go back to Armand's point, we're expecting a huge surge um, once the shutdown is, is, is over. We're, we're, we're still injecting AMD, so we're, we, everybody with AMD still gets injected because it's been shown that's um, time critical. Um, we're, we're, we've switched to two monthly maximum regimes. So they have their three induction courses and um, doses and they, they put on to a maximum of two monthly um, fixed um, and, we, and we tend to do batch fixed injections. And when patients come up for visits, they, we, we don't check the vision on every occasion. We do imaging and base um, treat and extend protocols um, to see if we can increase the intervals even more. Um, we, we, we're not treating branch veins and DMO so their, patient, their, their treatments have been suspended other than special clinical situations like only eyes. Um, uh, but that's just a summary of, of the sort of general clinical care that's going on in the UK for ophthalmology. Okay. Um, and your case, Murat, uh, how is... Uh, well, it's, uh, it's almost the same as David mentioned, but this situation, this determination will be will vary by region and over time based on the local prevalence of the infection. So he told that he's not doing DME or retinal vein occlusions. We are doing that. So we don't uh, make any difference in patients. So we should divide this in what we're doing in clinic and operating room. Are we going to discuss this later or should yeah. I? Yeah, we will. And we have a specific questions for the OR. Now we just wanted a brief uh, update in, in, in the current situation, and then we will address that, yes. Right now in the current situation, we can divide it in government hospitals and private hospitals. So in government hospitals, all the injections are made in operating rooms in Turkey, most of them, 99%. So the injections, intravitreal injections, are almost stopped in government hospitals. In the United States, you know, they are made in, in office visits, but in Europe and in Turkey, they are done in operating rooms. So the intravitreal injections are almost not performed in Turkey. They are delayed right now because all the operating rooms are cl closed for elective surgeries. Only emergency surgeries are done in operating rooms. But in private offices or private hospitals, they are doing injections and taking precautions. That is the difference. Okay. Armin, what's the current situation in Germany? Well, the current situation in Germany is difficult to judge because Germany, um, it's, 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 it's upon federal state law. So um, the situation in Bavaria or Baden-Württemberg, when I'm in now, is different from um, other uh, parts of Germany. But generally speaking, there is a, um, the elective surgery has been canceled. Um, there is, however, there was a discussion on uh, what is an elective surgery. And I think this is, this is basically the discussion we, we, are, we are leading here. Um, we are doing intravitreal injections. The intravitreal injections are considered um, a necessity for, for uh, that you can't get out of the loss. We have that data from studies and from other studies that's clearly evident if you lose the vision in a real life setting, it's very difficult to get it back. So um, we, intravitreal injections are currently performed um, and patients are also encouraged to, to undergo intravitreal injections. No elective surgeries um, such as um, uh, undocumented or patients coming in for, for vitreoretinal interface diseases. However, if you have a progression of a vitreoretinal interface disease, this might also <clears throat> be an indication for surgery. Again, um, the situation is heterogeneous, but um, most uh, people restrive from doing cataract surgery or uh, doing elective surgery. There's a, as I said, there's a discussion on what is elective, what is not elective. If you have a decrease of vision, um, we tend to not do the surgery. Here in my hospital, we don't do the surgery if it's not a clear indication um, of, of an of a emergency. Okay, so uh, 
How, how do you anticipate uh, it's going to be the uh, lockdown processes? This will vary a lot between countries and regions. So um, how do you anticipate the ASM lockdown is going to be uh, occurring and taking when and how? Um, David. Yeah, so, so um, it's interesting. So we, we have a very um, nationally run health service. So we have um, uh, so I think in, in my region, for example, 98% of health is provided by the NHS, so it's public health provided. So we have very few private clinics. Um, and so therefore, national directives are really important in terms of lockdown. So we, 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 will, we won't be able to make unilateral decisions of when we can do elective surgery. We're, there's a strong feeling now that... Um, <laughs> Patients aren't are so are so worried um, about not disturbing hospitals because they're too busy, and also worried about going to hospitals. And I think we need to start thinking about um, trying to let people know that they should be coming to hospitals with with with, with things which are important. Because I say the retinal detachment figures are pretty alarming. That fifty percent we think fifty percent of the acute retinal detachments are just staying at home. And we can't, you know, that's just not, 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 not a good situation. And of course, if you apply that to cancer and, and heart disease, it's a terrible situation. So I think we need to um, start thinking uh, about um, reducing the lockdown for, 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 for try and trying to encourage people to come to hospitals with, with other diseases if, they, if, they, if they're able to. Um, when we do um, do the unlockdown, we have to, we'll, have a, we'll have, potentially have this huge flux of acute cases. So some sort of, some form of triage um, will have to still occur and elective surgery just won't begin in, on mass because we'll have a huge backlog of acute cases, I think. Um, and I think a lot of the things we're doing at the moment, we're, we're treating, we're doing a lot more virtual assessments. So they only have to come for an OCT without vision and seeing the doctor. So they only meet one person for imaging. And then, and, and I think we'll be continuing to do a lot of that sort of thing and batched injections, as I've been saying, whilst we catch up with the backlog of acute stuff. Um, and, and, and people know that social isolation um, will have to occur. So, so we'll, you know, when you see people in clinics, this clinic turnaround time is massively reduced because you're having to wear masks, you have to wear uh, disposable gowns, gloves. Um, we can't have patients in, too close together in waiting rooms. So that sort of, I, I think a lot of that rationalization of care will have to continue um, when we, but in, in terms of the timing, I, I, um, the, the, the timing of the, the unlockdown in the UK is, is, is closely, um, uh, nobody knows, and the, and the government's announced five um, uh, rationales for, for, for unlocking the lockdown um, based on uh, death rates, case ascertainment rates, et cetera, et cetera, PPE provision. Um, and so I, I think it will be, I think in three weeks' time, they'll, they'll announce some unlockdown, but in healthcare, I'm not sure what they'll decide. Um, and how do you anticipate we're at uh, the unlockdown? Um, in Turkey, most of the hospitals are government hospitals, so they are not doing cataract surgeries. But all the retinal detachment, urgent and emergent cases, like retinal detachment, trauma, intraocular foreign body, PBRs, diabetic retinopathy, proliferative diabetic retinopathies, macular holes, they are being done in operating rooms right now in every government hospital. Only elective surgeries like cataract are postponed. And also the Ministry of Health told that uh, the signs of fast spreading contagious is coming under control as the number of new cases remains steady right now. The, the numbers are getting steady. And according to an infection specialist in Turkey, the number of novel coronavirus cases is expected to drop in May. And the peak will reach at the end of April. So uh, right now there is not a lockdown in Turkey, but only during the last two weeks, the weekends, for two days there was, there was a lockdown. Right now there's a lockdown only for four days. And Monday, every patient goes to the hospital, especially to government hospitals. Even they want to have glasses, they go to government hospitals and they can have reading glasses, there is no restriction. All the government doctors, ophthalmologists in working in government hospitals, they see every kind of patient right now. But only for surgery, they're doing urgent and emergent cases. 
And Armin, how do you anticipate the lockdown? Well, um, I don't know. Lockdown is a very wide word. Um, as, as I mentioned before, we are currently looking at the development. How is it going to be? If, if there's going to be a second peak or not? Um, and I'm very afraid, and I must uh, quote David that that actually we have two um, two topics that we need to to look at. One is how are we going to get out from the lock, lockdown, infrastructurally speaking. Um, and the other one is how do we take the fear of the patients of coming into the clinic and, and um, getting their treatments? Well, first, um, I, I think the lockdown, um, considering that it's going to be soon as it was before, is not very realistic from the German point of view. I think there's always going to be uh, a long-lasting uh, COVID uh, precaution um, in, in the system because we always need to face that there's going to be another peak and we need to um, rebuild uh, the, the health system as we did previously. Um, so so the, the, it's always going to be on, on duty. So the ophthalmology is an area that um, has a lot of elective cases and a lot of elective visits um, and, and the, the personnel involved in these visits is also involved in the emergency um, scenarios of, of COVID. So whenever there's a, another COVID peak, we would need to face that um, the ophthalmologic uh, situation is going to be different again. Now, the, the lockdown exits, um, I think, will slowly increase by increasing the, 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 the visits of the patient, by having more patients allowing to come to the, to the clinic. Um, on the other hand, I think we need to focus also on the patients because the patients are currently, if you, if you talk to the ladies on the phone, which are in, in, in contact with the patients and uh, are being called um, if the patient does not um, want to come to the clinic, a lot of the patients are afraid um, of coming to the clinic because they're afraid of getting the corona infection at the clinic. Mm. And I think we have to, to, to tell the patients or um, communicate the patients that um, the risk of a corona infection is one thing and the other one is a loss of vision. Um, so, so I think in the exit strategy, we, we are currently looking at these two factors um, and, and uh, we are also looking at the current uh, development of the situation. So it's too, too early really to say that. Yes, indeed, the, the virus has come to stay. Uh, some people, some experts on Harvard from UK, they anticipate another peak in October. Uh, this will last for months, maybe a year, since until we have a vaccine in the best scenario. So I would say that the easiest part was the lockdown because we were deferring everything that was not emergency. So that was not that difficult. But now, depending on the time in every country, it's gonna be two weeks, three weeks, a month or whatever. But at some point, let's say in a month, we'll be treating any patient because we cannot defer anymore. So uh, now I would like to discuss how in, real, in practicality, what kind of changes will you do in your practices to be able not to defer more and to treat people, to treat people thinking that many of them will be infected because maybe they will be asymptomatic, uh, treating people without being as a, a, a vector to them. So how in practicality, what kind of changes will you do since the patient enter, enters by your door uh, to yourself? What are you gonna do to be able to handle this no more deferring, uh, because at some point we'll, we'll not be able to defer anymore and we'll need to be able to treat elective things and anything. So how are you going to deal with that? Any one of you? I can well, answer it, right? Okay, yeah, go, go on. on. <laughs> okay, I'll, I was just going to say, um, so I guess, you know, um, we, um, we are already we're already seeing people. And um, so I can tell you what we're doing currently, and which we'll just have to expand as, as well as having some better social isolation in the waiting rooms. But so every patient who comes to the hospital gets screened um, in terms of symptom, symptomatology. But we don't do temperature screening as I know some countries are doing, but we ask them um, if they've had contacts or they've had symptoms. 
And then, um, and if they have had those things that 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 that, that you know that they're basically triaged by phone to see if they're if they can wait to come back at some other time. All the um, staff are in uh, scrubs or uniforms, uh, which aren't taken home. So we try not to spread the infections to homes. We wear face masks, um, plastic pinnies, and gloves for all patients. And the treatment rooms, including on-off switches, door handles, or everything like that, are, are wiped with alcohol after, before and after the patient leaves. And we also obey um, PPE um, removal strategies to try and remove them in the correct order to re reduce in contamination. Um, patients um, in the UK, interestingly, with the UK hasn't adopted widespread um, outdoor use of um, face masks, which I personally think is quite a good idea, but it's, in any case, it hasn't been done on a national level. Uh, but if patients have symptoms, we, we give them a face mask to wear, but otherwise they don't wear face masks. Um, so a lot of patients come in with face masks on, but we don't insist upon them. Um, and we, we use um, slit lamp guards, uh, um, which are either homemade or supplied by a variety of people. Um, um, and we, we, as I say, we, by, by reducing the clinic sizes, and this will have to be put in thought about how we, we spread people out in the waiting areas, because ophthalmology clinics, of course, are notorious for packed waiting rooms, and we can't have that in the future. I'll let, sorry, I'll let uh, my colleagues speak. Thank you. Well, I think it's, it's uh, as, 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 as you said, we, we, COVID is going to be along for, for, for a longer time. So one of the measurements I think we all have to face is that um, probably the numbers we did before will not be the same. We cannot do that numbers of surgeries or cannot have the numbers of patients in-house in because you need to have distance between them. So, so I think that would be one major point. Um, if we look at how we, we can deal with it later down, down the line, um, we still need, need to keep in, face, in, in, in mind that the numbers probably will be lower um, just due to uh, infectious restriction. And um, on, the, on the, the current situation as it is, um, all patients that are coming in for surgery are being tested uh, in our hospital. Um, and if the test is negative, only then, so they get to a ward where they are possibly positive. And if the test is negative, they are deferred to a second ward, uh, which you can only enter if you're negative. And from that ward on, you can do the surgery. So, so currently we only do surgery in COVID, in Corona-19 negative um, patients. I think that this might be a solution in dealing um, with, with um, a further spread and, and also with a lot of asymptomatic patients um, to, to avoid infections in the hospital. Um, but again, as I said, in the current situation, I think there's no clear solution to it. Uh, there's a lot of spontaneous reaction on how the situation is, uh, will develop, but we all have in mind that we need to treat our patients um, in the current future at a higher, the higher numbers again. First of all, I would like to add the operating theater, what we are doing there. Uh, we're doing a COVID test. It should be negative, but also we're doing, in most of the hospitals, they're doing a CT scan and they're doing a blood test because sometimes the COVID test can be negative, but in the CT scan, you can see some lesions in the lungs. So that's very important. Every patient is having a CT scan before surgery. And then we go ahead and do the surgery. I think this coronavirus is going to be for a couple of months, maybe a year. So we, we should take precautions for examining patients and we should start. I didn't work for one or two weeks, but right now I started to work and seeing patients Mon Monday, I'm going to do a macular pucker case. So we should take the precautions because these, this is not going to last for one or two months. It's going to be for a couple of months, I think. So what we're doing in the clinic is we're, before uh, we're doing a telephone triage process, should we make to ensure that the patient is not at high risk of COVID-19 infection, including travel to high risk areas, which we're asking them on the phone, contact with known or suspected COVID-19 patients, or symptoms of viral infection, including fever, cough, or shortness of breath. 
the patient should enter the clinic alone and those accompanying the patient should be encouraged to remain outside the clinic during the patient visit. We, the doctors, are wearing N95 masks, not surgical masks. So because we are very close to the patient, most of the doctors in Turkey who are dealing with patients, especially ophthalmologists, are wearing N95 or FFP2 or 3 masks. Patient time in the office should be minimized. Waiting areas set up distance people from each other by three to six feet. Every patient and doctor should take the precautions before examining the patient. We give, in Turkey, everybody has to wear a mask right now. It's mandatory. The masks are not sold in the pharmacies. They are given free and nobody is allowed to sell a mask. They, the government sends a short code to every phone and they introduce their cell phone or short code to the pharmacy and, and they get five or six masks every week. So that's very important. And in the operating room, uh, we, are, we as ophthalmologists, if the patient is under general anesthesia, I enter the room after the patient is prepped and draped. So I don't want to get exposed during the intubation period or in general anesthesia, which is very important. And we take all the precautions. The patient, when they enter the office or the hospital, we measure their fever. All of them have a mask and we give some disinfectant solutions to their hands. So we try to keep all the precautions and try to minimize the people in the office or the operating rooms. Thank you very much. And uh, it seems that we have a large audience uh, hearing us, which is uh, a privilege. Uh, I would invite anyone to, to submit any question if, if you need it. So please do so if you feel. So testing patients to, to discriminate positives and negatives in the OR seems to be feasible, but I don't think it's going to be that feasible in daily practices, patients that enter by our door to, to have a checkup for, for AMD and so on. And at some point, we'll be completely overpassed or overwhelmed by this. So I wonder if we shouldn't be adopting universal measures as when we did when HIV times that we were doing surgery in any patient if it was HIV positive. And also at some point, we'll maybe need to treat patients which are positive because now it's, okay, if it's positive, we defer it. But it's going to be situations when a patient is positive and needs treatment. So, uh, so two questions. Uh, what kind of universal measures would you do to treat everyone as if it was potential positive? And second, let's say that you have an AMD patient who has had a very acute drop of vision and the disease has just started, he's positive, and you don't want to treat him after three weeks. So what are you going to do? So, um, we, well, I mean, we, we, I think we do already take the view that everybody is positive. So, you know, because it's known that pre-symptomatically in COVID-19, you have actually um, high viral shedding. Um, so you're, and you're actually, actually most infectious before you get symptoms. So, and, and, and we know that people um, continue to main, maintain viral um, shedding um, well past symptom stage. So I think we're already assuming that they could well have, have COVID positive disease even if they haven't got symptoms in the hospital. So I outlined our outpatient um, precautions before. In theatre, where um, the, the official line in, in the UK is that um, you only have to use FFP3 um, masks, which is the European standard, um, for aerosol generating procedures in, in, in routine patients. Um, but vitreoretinal surgery is actually classified as a high-speed machinery because of the vitrectomy probe. Now, we'll, I'll talk a bit more about that later, maybe. But in any case, so we, we, we're wearing FFP3 masks in all vitrectomies. Uh, we've already have full draping. So we have draping in, uh, across the entire um, body with the, the, the drape tented over the face and oxygen because we do most surgeries under local. So again, I think that has to be a very clear case why you do under anything under GA at the moment because you get more aerosol generation, it puts more people at risk. Um, just like uh, Murat says, if we do do GAs where the patient is anesthetized uh, by the anesthetic team in theatre, um, all the other staff are kept out of theatre for, for, um, for, I think it's for two minutes 
and then they're allowed in. But all the all the scrub team and the surgeon wear FFP three masks in any case. Um, the, it, interestingly, so that that that's a a, a, a UK a Beavers um, British Area Association of Retinal Surgeons um, recommendation and the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. But I know the ASRS have also taken the same guidelines, but have also recommended putting a, a surgical mask over the top of a MEPF3, FFP3, presumably for the um, water resistance properties. Um, we don't wear, get the surgeon to wear a mask, but we rely on draping. Um, so for, for, to go back to your question of AMD patients, um, uh, uh, we, for, for we, 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 the, the, because they're not high speed, um, the recommendation is we just use normal masks. We, 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 in the UK, a bit like Murat was saying, we've always done um, patients in clean rooms. So they've, they've always been draped as well as not just, haven't just had a speculum, they've always been draped. So we've got that protection from the face and the mouth, um, which other, other places haven't got. Uh, and they're usually, in, they're usually in air vented rooms as well. Um, I, I, I can't imagine a scenario with AMD where you wouldn't wait, but if you had the, if you had the choice, and the patient was known to be shedding COVID, that you'd wait, you wouldn't wait two weeks. I mean, there may be situations where you would do, but most of the times, I think a two week wait wouldn't, wouldn't be of a great disadvantage. Well, I, I recently had a case uh, this week that I extend my patient two weeks uh, because I thought two weeks would not be a big deal. And the patient went from four, 2040 to 2125. Mm -hmm. Mm. And it's the only patient I, I'm, I'm blaming of deferring it because I'm trying to defer my patients. I see my, my charts remotely from home and I try to anticipate the dynamics of my AMD patients. So I try to, to speculate which patients can take 15 days more, three weeks more. So I try to extend that. And so far, I've been good for that uh, unless this patient that uh, had a recurrence only for two weeks. So, uh, so my question to any of three of you, would you reject a COVID positive for AMD to be treated or, or would you accept it? Also, on the other hand, I have, for example, a patient that, that has lost vision and has to come next week and she has diarrhea. Uh, it's not clear symptoms of COVID, but could be, and I don't think she'll be able to do the testing. So what should I do to her? Because you have diarrhea, stay home. So <clears throat> these are practical things that happen. So how do we handle them? Can I answer that question? Yeah. Yes, right now, the patients which we are seeing, everybody doesn't have a test. So we don't know if the patient is positive or negative. And no country in the world is testing every patient or everybody in the population. So we should treat every patient as if they were COVID positive. So we should take all the precautions even if they are AMD or diabetic macular edema or central vein occlusion, like COVID positive, we should not make any difference. The question should be, let's say if a patient has retinal detachment and is COVID positive, what are you going to do to that patient? We should take more precautions and not let the patient going blind because of retinal detachment. We should, we should take all the precautions more carefully in the operating room and treat the retinal detachment and not preventing the patient going blind. Because this situation is not going to stop in one or two months. It's going to last for, for many, many months. And we don't know when it's going to stop. We don't know when we're not going to stop the precautions. So, so we should start to treat all the patients, I think. Okay, Thank you. so uh, now that you said that, uh, I'd like you to get into those precautions. You said we should take all precautions in the OR, so please do it. So let's go to the very uh, detailed kind of precautions that everyone would do, even the simplest one or, or the most minimal one. But let's see, how do you go to an OR that you know that you have an, a patient with retinal attachment and you know for sure is COVID positive and you need to do surgery? What do you do since you change your, your clothes and, and you get into the OR? First of all, I may wear an N95 or FFP2 or FFP3 mask. If it's general anesthesia or local, I wait until the patient is prepped and draped. The anesthesiologist, my nurse, and scrubbing nurse, all of them wear masks and also wear a face shield if they're not looking through the microscope. 
I cannot wear a face shield because I'm looking through a microscope. So I wear a mask. And also, the patient, we try to keep it prepped and draped. That's the only precautions we can do during the operation. How much time do you think that since you drape the patient and the droplets are not in the air, it's safe? How, how much time is anyone that has that number? Uh, do you know maybe, uh, David, uh, which is the number that you can enter into OR after intubation that all the droplets will be in the floor? Yeah, so it was until very recently, it was 20 minutes, which was causing some problems, but they've, uh, they've massively reduced it to, um, it's two minutes. So they do after intubation, two minutes you wait, and if that, if that is okay, then everybody comes in. So um, that's, what's been, uh, that's what's been adopted. And so it must have, must have some rationale. I mean, these are rare, these are, um, these are um, you know, full um, air, laminated airflow theaters with HEPA filters in. So that obviously that doesn't, wouldn't apply if you weren't in a, um, a laminated flow theater, I guess. Um, so maybe that's, um, maybe that's a, an important difference. We, um, we've, we've, we've always worn um, full <coughs> waterproof gowns. Uh, we don't use them for um, for for um, injections. Obviously, we just for injections we just use scrubs and plastic gowns, um, plastic pinnies. Um, the 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 eye protection is really interesting because yes, we're doing the same as you, Murat. We we I I've tried operating with visors or goggles. I just can't do it for for vitrectomy surgery. And so um, you know, uh, we we are different from other surgeries because we're not we're not leaning over the patient. Um, you know, we're, we're looking through a microscope, which is at least 20, you know, at least 18 inches away from the patient's eyes. Um, also, you know, only, only, I think it's only one to 3% of COVID positive, positive patients have um, positive COVID in their tears. It's, so it, it happens, conjunctivitis happens, but it's not universal or common in COVID patients. Um, um, yeah, and then, well, I'd say at some point we can talk about aerosol generation during vitrectomy, but, but in terms of, um, um, uh, I, I, I suspect that the, the chances of an ophthalmologist operating, um, <laughs> I'm laughing because I, yesterday I was operating and um, uh, the, 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 um, the, the syringe for um, viscoelastic got blocked. And during the, uh, the, the, the forceful procedure to unblock it, a bit of viscoelastic flew into my eye as I've just been saying something similar. So <laughs> it's possible, I guess. Yes. Uh... Uh, Armin, um, well, well, coming back to, to the to the scenario that you described, um, a COVID positive patient, Corona positive patient with a retinal detachment, that is about possibly in the only seeing eye. So that is about the 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 the, the largest nightmare that any of us probably have. Um, as 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 David and Murat said before. We should all treat patients as if they were positive. But again, the scenario, uh, realistically speaking, becomes different when you know the patient is COVID uh, positive. There is um, hygienic restrictions to it, and and I know that a lot of um, surgeries, a lot of hospital, university hospitals in Germany, they have um, selected ORs for COVID positive uh, surgery. Um, unfortunately, these ORs, they, they, they lack musically the, the, the microscopes. Um, <clears throat> so, so generally speaking, as David said, I, I would probably try not to do uh, surgery in GA, um, do it do, do locally if any possible, um, have the full precaution, take uh, FFP and uh, a surgical face mask. Um, otherwise, I would just try to proceed as normal as possible um, because the, the, the data is limited. As, as David said, there's only a very low number of patients that have uh, coronavirus in their tear share. But um, on the other hand, um, if I look at the situation that some large hospitals will have corona positive or corona COVID positive uh, surgery rooms, um, we might also consider uh, rather doing a buckle than doing a, a vitrectomy in these cases. Again, it seems that infection is, is the highest, uh, is, is, is at a higher risk if you have very symptomatic patients. And um, if you have very symptomatic patients, um, it could be that they don't even, realistically speaking, they don't even realize that the retinal detachment if they're in full anesthesia or if they're, if they're intubated. 
So, so I'm not, I'm not sure we are going to to face the situation. But as long as the situation lasts, I'm sure that we, at least we have some corona positive testing for a surgery that we need to do because it's at at uh, at, at the the, the guarding division. So probably um, I would do additional measurements, but uh, do as, as as one should do. So um, going back to the the aerosols and and this return, we we agree we cannot use uh, a screens, but we do agree that the aerosols or droplets floating in the air may get into our conjunctiva and we may get infectious. So so which is the, uh, as you said, is two minutes enough not to get infected through our conjunctiva from a uh, previous aerosol from anesthesia, first question. And then David, uh, if you wanna um, uh, speak more on the aerosol formation during vitrectomy, please. Um, yeah, so that so the two minutes is um, is a is a hospital-wide guideline. I, I, I'm not aware if that's a UK guideline or a hospital one. The, yeah, so aerosol generation to vitrectomy. So aerosol, um, so the vitrectomy came under high-speed instrumentation. Now that's normally referred to in machines operating more than 50,000 cycles per minute. Obviously, the fastest vitrectomy machines on the market at the moment are, there are only one cycle is 10,000. So obviously we have dual cutting, uh, but they're only actually operating at up to 10,000 cycles per minute at the moment. Um, and also, um, aerosols only occur at fluid air interfaces. So we operate in a closed um, air ocular environment. So we, don't, we do introduce air into the eyes during vitrectomy, and some people do air um, interface vitrectomy. Um, but of course, we also we use, mostly use valve ports. And obviously, all our aspirating fluid is taken up into the cassette of the vitrectomy machine. And then, and then, you know, and so for example, with an alcohol consolation vitrectomy machine, if you get venting into anything aspirated into your cassette, get vented via a 0.2 micron filter um, out the machine. I, I'm not aware of the other machines, but certainly the alcohol machine's got a got a got a got a filter in the exhaust. So then you might say, well, what about? So does vitreous have um, COVID in it, or you know, um, SARS corona, uh, the, the SARS um, coronavirus in it? And it, it hasn't been shown yet, either in vitreous or aqueous. Um, it's not been um, found. Um, it has been shown that, um, the, that similar coronaviruses in other animals can have a retinal vasculitis, but that hasn't, to my knowledge, been reported in humans yet. We, of course, do have um, ACE2 receptors in our retinal blood vessels, which is the, you know, the, sorry, not receptors, but the transmembrane proteins, which the, the SARS virus uses to invade cells. Um, but again, it hasn't been shown in humans as yet that we have human retinal involvement or human vitreous or aqueous involvement. It's possible, you know, and, it, and it's always better to be safe than sorry. But I think the chances of getting aerosol generation from vitrectomy and, and from that source is pretty low. I think it's much more important from the, from the, from the expirations, coughing, sneezing, talking from the patient. So the patient shouldn't talk <laughs> during vitrectomy and they should have drapes covering their face uh, and possibly a mask as the American surgeons are recommending. But uh, I think vitrectomy aerosol generation is unlikely. Thank you. Um, any other comment in this regard? Uh, yeah. Uh, I agree every word with Dr. David told. One of the most important issues is that the operating room has to have, as he mentioned before, laminar flow. Some operating rooms in Turkey do not have laminar flow. They have only HEPA filters, which I believe laminar flow is essential in an operating room if you're operating on a COVID-positive patient. And I don't think that during vitrectomy, you have a very big chance to get infect infected just by doing a vitrectomy. Even if you don't wear glasses like me, uh, you can wear some mat shields, but protective glasses during vitrectomy, and you can still look through the microscope. You can have a very good feel. So maybe that kind of glasses could protect you some from droplets accidentally from a nurse squirting some liquid on top of the eye, or some liquid comes from the eye to your eye. You can prevent that. But I don't think that during vitreoretinal surgery, you can catch any 
coronavirus infection. Cool, thank you. Uh, there's been a question from the audience addressed to, to me because I work in Spain, so addressing what's gonna be the measure in the upcoming transition. I think that's mostly been covered, but yes, we'll need to treat patients uh, in a larger scale, but considering they have, they may have the virus, so um, we'll need to change our circuits. We'll need to put, I, I do now, and I will keep doing it, put a mask. Every patient enters by the door. We put a mask on the patient. We put the mask on the accompanying person. We only allow one accompanying person. Accompanying person do not enter into the, in the, in, in, the offices and the boxes. Uh, we maintain patients isolated. We ask them to wash their hands with liquid at the entrance. Uh, we face masks. Uh, we wear masks, sorry, um, uh, screens. And, and we disinfect everything uh, after every single patient and we try not to put them in the same uh, area. So it's gonna be a burden and we'll maybe uh, we'll do uh, uh, bands of different ages. Maybe we'll see old people at certain times and different from young people because they're weaker. So we'll, we'll need to do many things to, to coexist uh, the risk with uh, treating because at some point we'll not be able to defer anymore. So uh, now I'm doing brainstorming with my team how to implement all these new uh, weird circuits in order to, to diminish the risk because our AMD patients are really fragile and at risk, and I, I, I'm considering to see if there's gonna be a way to providing them the test in my own place. So uh, I don't know if it's gonna be feasible, but I will try to, to struggle for that, trying to, to do the test to my patients and, and to make them eat easy. So um, there are many open questions yet, but no question that we'll need to adopt many, many things to make them safer and feel safer. Because as Armin said and others have said, one of the problems is going to be the fear of them to come and they will not, will, they will not feel safe in our practices. So that's something we'll need to, to work with. So uh, talking of fears, uh, I remember a question I, was, I didn't write it. What are your personal fears? Each of you, what do you fear? If do you have any fear in these times? David? <laughs> so... Um... <laughs> Well, I, I fear so I fear social isolation continuing long term. I I think there's a huge amount of people. I mean, as as both you and Armin have said about you know fearing to come to hospitals, fearing to get out. But I mean, you know, just having severe mental health problems at home. You know, it's bad enough. I've I've gone through periods where I felt very anxious, and I you know I go out and go to the hospital each day. But if people who are stuck at home all the time, they must be terribly fearful, and um and and and. And, you know, uh, uh, at least in Britain, as I mentioned when, before we went on air, uh, that we can, we can go out and have an hour's exercise. In some countries where you can't even go outside to have an hour's exercise, it's very, very distressing. Um, and we're talking about maintaining social isolation for, for, for a year or more. And that's, that's pretty, so that's, I'm pretty frightened about that. I, I want to go outside and enjoy myself, as I'm sure everybody wants to do. Um, so that's my biggest fear. <laughs> Armin? Well, that's my, that's my fear as well, you know, especially if I look at my, my two sons being about being barely one year and, 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 and five years old, they, 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 you can't lock down kids, it just doesn't work, they need to, to learn, they need to, to, to study, that, that's in a personal way. But um, when, when I look at, at the, 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 the current situation, and I've talked to a lot of my colleagues here in Germany, is that we do have in general the experience that the numbers of retinal detachments are lower than they used to be. And that's not due to someone at the other side doing more surgeries or so. It's a general impression. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're just up and downs and we all know that and you cannot judge by just having a few numbers. But um, I'm afraid that we are going to do more severe cases in two months um, with a lot of PVR because retinal detachment is not something that the whole population is aware of. Um, well, you, you know, if you have a stroke, you go to the doctor. If you don't see well, uh, you might just wait. And, and that, that's a bit what I'm fearing. If you're a long-term intravitreal uh, injection patient, you know the symptoms, you know if it's getting worse, you, you need to get an injection. There's online services to that. We, we are currently working on, on virtual clinics. We're working on networks and, and trying to improve 
um, virtual solutions or online solutions for, for our patients and, and test VA testing or AMSLA testing might be a solution for that. But I don't, I don't fear too much about these patients. I, I, well, sure that the, the situation is going to be worse for them. But um, I, I fear more about the retinal detachments that are being deferred and uh, will have a worse outcome in the three months. Murat, what are your fears? Well, I have a personal fear right now. I have twins, two daughters right now. They're going to university at LA and they cannot come here. I cannot go there. One of them is graduating. Both of them are in biochemistry. One, is, one has a graduation ceremony this June from UCLA. And I cannot go there, which I'm very unhappy about that. But for the people in the world, we should adapt to social distancing. This is not going to end in one or two months. This is going to be for many, many months. So we should be accustomed for maybe a year, for maybe more than a year, adaptation to social distancing. Distancing is the most important step in preventing the transmission of this disease. That's the most important word I would like to say. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Murat. Mm. So uh, we are getting close to our end of this radio program. It's been very exciting. And uh, do you have any other uh, topic or uh, hot stuff that you would like to comment? Yes, maybe, maybe, maybe I can quote on the last point um, that I was mentioning that um, it is amazing. Well, well, every situation is always a bad thing in, in the Corona sense. There's a good thing to it. If you look at how IT surface, services and online options are, are getting better and are suddenly uh, solutions are possible which were not possible before. So maybe we can also look at it in a positive way and take up this guard and maybe put our forces that we do have while we're sitting in home, from home offices um, and, and put up systems and networks to, to increase the, the ophthalmologic care um, without putting the patients uh, on risk while traveling to the clinics or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there yeah. are things in the market already, which the home-based uh, home OCT is that you can monitor patients in uh, remotely and you detect alarms. And that's already been uh, done in US, but may have spread more. So those things. And also uh, uh, maybe we'll spend, sorry, maybe we'll waste less gas from flying to face-to-face -to -face meetings. Now we're getting used to do these kind of virtual meetings which they really work and we don't need to, to waste so much gas and, and spoiling the environment. So yes, uh -huh. we'll take good lessons from this uh, lockdown situation. Yeah, completely. Can I add one example? Very quick example. In Istanbul in the Bosphorus, in the Golden Horn, we, we could only catch small fishes. Right now, dolphins are coming to the uh, very close to the Bosphorus of Istanbul. We see dolphins everywhere, and we are. Mm -hmm. And I read that they are seeing dolphins even in the Venice canals. So I think nature is coming back again. Nature is laughing at us. Yes, that's a, that would be a lovely thought if we can if we can go and see them as well. But uh, you can watch it in the hedgerows in the UK. The animal life is, is improving as well. Like, that's a really interesting observation, Murat and I. But yeah. we um, burn less fuel and do some good from this in the future. <laughs> we should take some lessons from this. Yes. Definitely, yeah. Okay, so um, it's been a great time. Uh, thank you very much. It's been an hour already. Um, I think almost of the things that we like were covered. If you have any last comments, otherwise, uh, Thank you again for uh, this uh, COVID episode radio program and see you, see you soon. Uh, be well, stay safe and, and stay at home, please. <laughs> stay at home. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. 
This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.